Radio Mano Papachango. Gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. I'm Chris, your host with the most. I'm not sure what I have the most of, but I have the most something. Uh, I have the most microphone at the moment. This is an episode with a guy named Brian McKenzie. Let me be honest with you. Sometimes I book uh, a conversation with someone and I'm not sure I'm going to enjoy it. I mean, that's life, right? We're never sure how anything's going to work out. But um, this guy, Brian McKenzie, there's been a, a series of like movement people recently on the podcast. You may have noticed, and I'm not like, a, you know, an, a top athlete. You may have noticed that also. Um, but there was a guy who recommended uh, Rafe Kelly, for example, and then I don't know if it Andrew, I think his name. I don't know if Andrew recommended Rafe or how it happened. But there's this sort of snowballing effect of you know, oh, you had a good conversation with him. You should talk to this guy, and then this guy. Anyway, somehow I got in touch with this guy Brian McKenzie, and I looked him up online and you know he's a serious guy he's he's worked with uh you know all kinds of i don't know navy seals and um he's written a couple of books he's co-authored some books about movement he's into uh um breath work he's worked with uh olympic athletes um, professional athletes you know the military he's and he's very interested in sort of natural movement um uh, how can i say this like sort of athletics but as a as a reflection of the way our bodies were meant to move i'm sure there's a, a much more succinct way of saying that um anyway so i booked this thing thinking yeah we'll see how it goes i don't know dude seems a little slick you know his website's super slick and you know, human optimization is is a phrase that sort of makes me roll my eyes. So I was skeptical, let's say. Um, but I had a great conversation with him. I really enjoyed it. He's funny. He's self-deprecating. He's vulnerable. Um, he's a badass. He's a badass in the ways that I respect not just muscles and tats and you know whatever other sort of uh, external measures of badassery people refer to he's badass in the sense that he's honest and he's kind and he's smart and uh he's open i i really respect that so anyway if you're skeptical if you're like chris what's with the human optimization bullshit i get i get it i'm there with you um, and honestly, what I, one of the things that I really enjoyed about this conversation, you'll hear at the very beginning, I'm like, okay, dude, I got a conundrum here with all this, you know, human optimization. 
and uh you know so i sort of laid it out and we'll see you know i was thinking we'll see how he responds to this and that'll tell me whether i'm actually going to post this <laughs> episode or not because if he's defensive about it then this isn't going to work out but if he sees my point and we can roll then it will and he did and it did and so here we are and i really enjoyed this as i've said probably five times by now uh i've got a few more i actually uh two more people in this world i've mentioned before uh shanji i think that's how you pronounce hibero uh eight time world champ uh jujitsu guy i recorded a podcast with him and cameron shane uh budokan movement but again these are not guys we're not talking about uh you know joint flexibility and cardio rates and co2 saturation levels uh this is all what is it about what you do that relates to life in general to psychological issues to how to live the best life to how to deal with relationships stuff like that and and all of these guys are ready to have those conversations um so don't get the impression that it's like you know i'm working out all the time and bringing you my personal trainers that's not what's happening at all all right anyway so this is brian mckenzie he's awesome he uh started a company called uh shift i think but it's spelled funny oh no it is shift but then the website's funny anyway um you can find him at brianmckenzie.com with a z mckenzie he's a human performance specialist and he's very photogenic but see these are all reasons i would not want to have this guy on the podcast so despite him being very photogenic and a human performance specialist i'm still recommending that you listen to this conversation because he's pretty awesome okay uh what's going on it's saturday august 28th i posted the august video roma i do the monthly uh except i think last month i skipped because nobody asked any questions uh these are for people who support the podcast financially if you're on patreon or you're doing it through my website you should have received a notice uh, and a link and you can go and watch this latest one as well as all the previous ones they're all on the same playlist on youtube um this was a a really good one really good questions um really interesting i i love responding and i i'm not i don't i don't say i answer the questions i respond to the questions i talk about the questions um a lot of these questions don't have answers and that's what makes them so interesting all the best questions lack answers i think so um but uh let's see what were some of the the there was a a guy who's 22 hasn't had sex yet and he wanted to know like how what should i do about this how do i deal with this should i just like have sex with someone and get it out of the way or should i wait it's kind of getting in my head yeah and i can understand that and that was a that was a complicated one um 
Yeah, someone else was asking, what's the evolutionary purpose of consciousness and the subconscious? Really interesting questions. Anyway, so if you support the podcast financially, you've got access to that stuff as well as all the ebooks and whatever other bonus content I throw up. Oh, throw up might have been the wrong word. I, I didn't mean vomit. I meant throw up on the site, throw up on the web, throw up wherever. Uh, all right. I'm going to Guatemala in a few hours. Anya and I are flying down to Guatemala today, tonight. We have like a midnight flight. I don't know why there are midnight flights, but all the flights from L.A. to Guatemala appear to be at midnight. So we're doing that. Um, going to go down to Antigua and then uh, Atitlan and then pick a place and sit there for a couple of months writing and getting shit done that we can't get done in the van. Uh, obviously, we'll be doing lots of podcasting as well. I'm sure I'll meet some interesting folks down there. Seem to meet interesting people wherever I go. The world's full of them. I did a podcast uh, recently, which will go up soon with, uh, what was that guy's name? Andrew Gold or something? Yeah, Andrew Gold. Really interesting cat. Um, British documentary filmmaker he's based in berlin right now but he did a film in buenos aires about um an exorcist a catholic priest who's performing exorcisms highly recommend you look that up it's on youtube it's uh andrew gold exorcism you'll find it a really interesting kind of guerrilla documentary filmmaking style and he's working now on a project, a book, and a film about pedophiles. So we talked a lot about that. It's a, it's a complicated, somewhat difficult conversation, as you can imagine. Um, but very interesting. And, you know, pedophilia is one of these areas of life that people seem to think we can just ignore it and it'll go away or we can you know penalize it and it'll go away and as is so often the case that's not true um i think jesse Baring, uh in his book perv talked about pedophilia as being a sexual orientation so it's as likely to go away as the gay you know or the straight or whatever your thing is uh it's it's part of an identity it's not a fetish it's not a although it could be argued that fetishes are part of identity as well but it's it's not a preference it's not a choice it's an essential integral part of a personality that is not going to be altered um of course, that doesn't mean that everyone who's attracted to children is going to hurt children. Um, and the question is, how do we maximize the chance that someone who is attracted to children will not hurt children? And the way we're going about it now, by ignoring it, not want to talk about it, not want to hear about it, not want to do therapy around it, doesn't work. It never works. It never works. It's it's like our approach to sex in American schools, right? Just say no. Just say no and don't talk to me about it. It makes me nervous. Ah. 
You're 15. You can't have sexual feelings. That's ridiculous. I can't handle it. So we're not going to talk about it. Great. Great. That's a real smart way of dealing with things, huh? It's how we deal with a lot of things. It's how we're dealing with the fucking end of the world. Um, speaking of pedophilia and this whole denial, weird way we deal with things, Apple, uh, you may have heard in their next update, have something where it's scanning phones, I guess, or it's scanning iCloud, or I don't, I don't remember exactly what it is, but it automatically scans your photographs looking for matches to photos that are in a child porn database and if it finds a series of matches it will report you to police and so it's a big uh, sort of civil rights issue because people are like shit what i have on my phone is mine it's private and yet here here's this company saying well not if it's an image that is considered you know child sexual abuse or whatever uh we're automatically you know there's this mechanism to report you to the police so i guess people are into child porn or freaking out um and it's an interesting situation because of course you know the the impulse is to say well fuck those people the hell with them good for them go to jail whatever but of course what are we talking about here we're we're talking about you know the civil rights thing is a company looking into your phone um and you know what if you have photos of your daughter who's three years old and running around naked and now you're gonna have to like deal with cops coming to your door i mean what um so you know by law we all need to be as uptight as you people are that a naked kid running around is a sexual issue uh are we gonna start you know dressing our cats and dogs too uh you know is that bestiality that my dog's walking around naked and and licks his balls i mean jesus christ what the fuck there was an island uh in ireland it was an island off the coast one of the most sexually uptight places on earth where they actually did that they put little i don't know if it was little diapers or skirts or little shorts or whatever on the dogs and cats because to to cover their genitals because it was indecent for these animals to walk around with their balls hanging out okay so that's one issue but the other issue is why are images illegal i don't understand the the legal or or ethical or philosophical argument that an image should be illegal to possess i can understand that it could be illegal to you know post it in public where people don't want to see it to put it up on a billboard or something um but i don't understand 
the the argument behind an image being illegal if the argument is if you look at an a sexualized image of a child you're more likely to hurt a child then how do you respond to all the images of people being murdered and maimed and blown apart and massacred that are in video games and films and TV shows and, you know, photojournalism. If the image promotes the behavior, then we're fucking surrounded by images of murder and mayhem. So why aren't they illegal? I don't get it. Um, so presumably that's not the argument. The kid, a naked kid is sexualized by the observer, right? I mean, there are naked kids running around all over the world right now and nobody's seeing that as sexual. It's like breastfeeding in America breastfeeding is sexualized breastfeeding a child in public is sexualized but that's the problem of the observer right the woman who's breastfeeding her child is not a stripper and if you see her as in terms of a stripper that's your issue that's not her issue it's a very strange thing that we do where we project our hang-up onto someone or something in the case of an image, and then we try to eliminate that thing or that person or that behavior rather than having any awareness that we're the ones, the problem comes from us, right? The problem comes from our unexamined assumptions, our lack of self-awareness, our lack of self-critical thought. If you see a woman breastfeeding a kid in public and you get turned on by that, first of all, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, whatever. You can get turned on by whatever the fuck you want to get turned on by. I don't see how there's anything criminal or pernicious or ugly or weird about getting turned on. Now, if you start acting on that, if you make her uncomfortable or you start saying weird shit that then you're projecting your experience onto other people who don't want to hear that, who don't share that experience. And that's the problem. The problem is not in the woman. The problem is not in the act. The problem is not in the image. The problem is in your relationship with it. This is how I feel about sex addiction or any addiction. Alcohol is not the problem. Sex is not the problem. Gambling's not the problem. You're the fucking problem. The problem is that you've got some reaction happening within you that, you, that makes you uncomfortable or that you can't control. The problem is not what provokes that reaction. So I don't understand why images of 
naked kids or or like let's take it to the further i mean you can have an image of a dog being tortured on your phone that's not illegal torturing a dog is illegal in most countries torturing a bull is a fucking festival in spain these things are complicated and i don't understand i mean i'm i'm very open to understanding the the nuance of the acts like why is torturing a bull a festival in spain but illegal in other countries why is you know forcing an animal to to be raised in a cage its entire life not considered animal abuse i mean there's so many nuances to this discussion but what i'm really interested in is why is an image illegal how can an image be illegal now what if that image is a is a drawing is it still illegal what if it's photoshopped to look sexualized is that illegal it's like this thing on instagram where women can't show their nipples on instagram but men can and then people take men's nipples and photoshop them onto women and then it's like oh now is it illegal i mean those are men's nipples they look exactly the same <laughs> it's a mess it's a fucking mess anyway brian mckenzie he's really cool uh check him out and i will stop talking i'll be back with you soon i'll be coming to you from guatemala uh next time and uh, i hope your summer is gone all right i got a lot i want to talk about but it's been 20 minutes i'll save it i'll do aroma or whatever um thank you for your support of the podcast however that manifests don't forget if you use amazon you can use my link uh that's a great way to support the podcast costs you nothing you don't need to sign up for anything just go to my site click on the amazon link save it if if you know how to do that you know form a bookmark um and uh that way a little money that you a little change you drop on the floor as you go through amazon rolls into support of the podcast and that's pretty awesome costs you nothing more prices don't go up it just takes a cut off jeff's end of things and he can fucking afford it all right brian mckenzie i'm gonna play you out with a song kind of cliched but i love it uh cliched in the sense that it's an obvious it's called move with me he's a movement specialist get it uh but it's a song i've had in my playlist forever for god i don't know the first time i heard it i think it was in a movie called waiting for the end of the world which was a very interesting independent film i probably saw in the 80s william hurt i think you two had a song it was a really interesting soundtrack daniel lanois very interesting i should revisit that film anyway uh this song's called move with me it's nana cherry and it's just kind of a funky smooth piece of music i hope you enjoy it if my plane goes down and this is the last thing i ever say uh you know love is the answer if my plane doesn't go down love is still the answer bye
whispering As I was driving quietly the car was rolling like a bullet Welcome to Tangentially Speaking, Brian. Good to have you. Chris, pleasure, man. Nice to meet you. You too. You too. Um, so I was looking at your your bio and, and your information online, which is all very impressive. And, uh, and it reminds me of a conundrum that I face. And I wonder if we can start off talking about the conundrum. And <laughs> Let's get into the conundrum. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... You know, one theme that I see in your work is, um, it's probably the sort of most prominent theme, is uh, human optimization, functioning at the highest level, you know, doing uh, physical things that are, are considered very difficult, like running marathons or Ironman competitions or the various training that you uh, subject yourself to and that you also lead others on. But then you also talk about stress reduction and dealing with stress. And I think in your email to me, you said, like, I'm mostly interested in stress and that's kind of what I'm dealing with. And I look at these things and I think nothing would stress me out more than training to run a fucking marathon, dude. Yeah. Like I get yeah. stressed, you know, uh, running to the mailbox and back. And I, I mean, I'm joking, but I, I, there is something about the human optimization movement mm -hmm. that I feel like it generates a certain kind of stress because it sets people up to feel like I'm not functioning at my highest possible mm -hmm. level. I'm not taking yeah. the right supplements. I don't have as 10,000 foot, you know, steps and not drinking the right amount of water. Um, how do you deal with that in your own practice and your own life and, and your work? Yeah. Yeah. Well, A, I, um, 
I don't run ultra marathons anymore. I don't do Ironmans anymore. I've, I've tamed that beast, I guess you could say. Um, and make no mistake, you know, there's nothing healthy about running marathons. There's nothing healthy about doing an ultra marathon. Um, but my question for people is largely, and this is the question that I had for myself, why are you doing this? What's the purpose? Yeah. And that was where my work, when I, 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 I the transition really occurred probably about, I'd say close to 12 years ago, um, which was roughly when I wrote my first book, um, which was Power, Speed, Endurance, which was the endurance kind of, we, we created a paradigm shift in the endurance world on high skill strength and conditioning work for the endurance athlete. This was something that endurance athletes just did not do in any way, shape or form. Like strength and conditioning and skill development was a last ditch resort when we were, when they were just banged up. And, and I, start to ask myself the question, why am I doing this? Cause I got tired of hearing like, what are you running from? <laughs> you know, like, and, um, I, when I asked that question, I, I dug down to understand that. And I, I saw an aspect of not necessarily just wanting to improve myself, but wanting to understand myself. Who am I? Why am I here? What am I doing? And how do I look at this medium by using that? And I was able to actually articulate and understand that at that point, which also was why it was so easy to transition into the kind of space that I'm in now, which is centered around breath work, really, because it's really all about stress. That's what we're the, I think, I believe, so two different things. We're the most evolved species based on a couple of things. One, how we, work with energy, our metabolism, hmm. and B, because from a thought process, and you'll get this kind of because of that psychology degree, is uh, our ability to understand that we can manipulate stress for adaptive possibilities. Hmm. We literally understand that. We know we every single day, whether we're recognizing this or not, we go and stress ourselves for an outcome that can be short-term, but also long-term, right? So this is about change, change becoming, but uh, sometimes we don't want it, but that then forces something to happen, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that was where I, this is what, what my work really is centered around. Like I, I can go in and work, like I've got a, a gal who's running tomorrow track, could work with a world-class track athlete, or I could go work with a CEO, or I could go work with an operator, right? like who's in, in, you know, and we're in a high stressed combative situation with firearms. And yet it's all the same thing. It's stress, but it's in different <laughs> contexts, right? Or if we're running a marathon, right? And I don't by any means anymore, encourage anybody to go out and have to engage in suffering in order to understand things. Culture's convinced us that's, you know, of this enough, right? Mm. Like, and I mean, I yeah. think that's the beauty of what sex at dawn has really exposed was, you know, Hey, I mean, I, I, I routinely, and this is not my quote, I forget who I got it from, but routinely bring this up. And I think this is second time, second or third time today, but it's, um, culture's greatest achievement is se the selling of suffering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good line. Right? We need, we need politics. We need religion. We need this education system. We need this in order to throw and no, no, not necessarily. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I have always been highly uh, suspicious 
of Mm. any voice telling me that suffering is necessary. You've done a good job of articulating that through your work. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, that's another conundrum though, right? Like how do you write a book about the emptiness of writing a book, you know, or Mm. uh, you know what I mean? Like how do you promote your work when your whole point is like, you shouldn't need to promote anything, you know, it's. uh, Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the, Thing we, I, I was having this conversation on a podcast I do with one of my business partners about Jay Krishnamurti. You know, it's ironic that he disbanded, you know, this organization that was trying to raise him up as the as the world leader of something. And he came to the its opening and disbands this thing and talks about the dance with the devil. And he's like, the devil wants you to organize this. You don't get it. <laughs> like, right. I'm not the guy. Like, But yeah. yet he stayed. He continued to write and he continued to talk and he continued to share because, you know, it turns out we need community. We need people. Right. 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 And sometimes, uh, you know. Yeah, I was on a, somebody's podcast the other day and, and he asked me what, you know, as someone who's kind of uh, naturally and philosophically against work, why did I bother? And my motivation, which ties into what you're talking about here, my motivation for both the books I've written so far is um, to try to help people avoid unnecessary suffering. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So Correct. like if I I'll suffer a little bit to write the book so that lots of people can suffer less, it's a net gain, um, you know, unless I'm deluding myself, which is always a possibility. This is always a possibility with us. And, and if we're and if we're critical, think if we think critically enough, that will always be the question. Yeah. But I think we're both on the same path, you know, just a couple different mediums, even though, you know, I've, I've got a new book that I'm about to start and looking to go get a book deal on that, which will be centered around all this stuff. But, you know, I want to share with people what I've learned and how I've gotten through suffering and what, what, what tools I use to do that. And Mm. I don't think any one tool is a solution, which is what's the, 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 the interesting thing about the breathwork space at this point was, uh, you know, it's just like, as I, every time I turn my head, there's a new, person who's you know this breath guru right and it's like awesome like you know but we just stick to principles it's just principally speaking how does this function with us and why is it so important and you know why do we need to move well because if we stop moving we start dying like and it turns out energy needs us to move right so and energy yeah. needs to move through us right there's like oh yeah there's no there's no end point right like all energy that's ever existed has always existed, and that is just it. It's just was in a smaller, denser size as basis based on what we currently understand. Yeah. And we just so happen to have one of the most efficient or arguably the most efficient means for moving that energy, which is aerobic cellular respiration. Hmm. You mentioned your own suffering a minute ago mm-hmm. and how you've moved beyond it. Where where would you locate the the worst suffering in your life? Has it been physical, emotional? Uh, uh, I would say emotional for sure. Uh, and, and that's been tra- – like, I mean, I've had some heavy-duty physical stuff that I've gone through. But never has that physical trauma or traumatic instance really – brought too much suffering because of the work I think I've done on that emotional side of things. Um, Mm. 
which I mean, I've seen, I mean, I've seen some very, very dark shit because when you peel that onion down, it really comes down to, well, what did my childhood look like? And even though it looked like I had a great childhood, (laughs) there were some serious issues that were occurring that I somehow inherited and dragged along throughout my life as we do. And, you know, when I peeled that thing down, it came down to rejection, right? Like rejection is just this huge death sentence for all of us. And how we manage to deal with rejection gets displayed in our behavior. And I was like this puppet dancing with codependency in many relationships. But then I also was like this volatile, reactive person because I didn't understand what my boundaries were. But damn, if somebody crossed them, rah, like, you know, Mm. and, you know, all of that stuff took years. I mean, we're talking 20 years to really peel that down and and look at and be honest about and, you know, be like, wow, it isn't them. I like people, all of us have issues, but it's like, I'm the coincidence in all of my issues. Right. right? So I might as well start working on that coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that. What's that, uh, that line, you know, if you run into an asshole every once in a while, that's an asshole. If you run into an asshole every day, maybe you're the asshole, right? Like, correct. Correct. Like something. if everybody cutting me off in traffic is, is, it's doing, it's personal. It's not like, it's not them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's funny. I, I notice that all the time. Uh, you know, how, how the change in perspective changes perception so much, you know, like when I cut someone off, it's just like, sorry, man, I just need to get off on this exit, you know, nothing personal. But when someone does it to me, it's like, you fucking asshole, what's wrong with you? It's just like exact same experience just to, you know, which side of it are you on? Yeah. Yeah. So how did your, um, you know, when you work through this stuff or, you know, it's an ongoing process, I'm sure, yeah. but oh, yeah. work, working through your, your childhood wounds and trauma and so on, how does that connect to the the physical work that you do and the, the training and the, you know, the, the yeah. aerobic aspect yeah. of things? Yeah, yeah, that's the interesting part. And this is, this is, I think, where our work is most important. Like, this is where we're very unique in what I'm, you know, like what I'm doing here is very unique because that's where the connection is is, is most of us are actually training or doing something because we believe it's good for us. Well, that's culture selling you on something again. (laughs) Like we think health is this thing we can put in a box and organize and it's not, you know, it's uh, you go look at, you go look at nature, you go look out in the wild and you don't need to box that up, man. And and is it ironic? I mean, I, I guess Jordan Peterson just did some podcast with somebody that, uh, they were talking about the split brain and all of this stuff going on in society. And I just got this on a thread and, and uh, you know, um, the guy who said it at the end, he was like, wow, the scientist basically broke down that people who are healthiest are the ones that get outside into the, in, into nature <laughs> all the time and have very socially dynamic and healthy relationships. And I'm like, that shouldn't be a wow, dude. That should be a duck. No shit, man. You yeah, know, I was, yesterday I was walking on a trail with a with a couple of friends, and uh-huh. one of the one of the friends is uh, thinking about becoming a therapist, and uh-huh. she said, "You know, I don't know. Maybe I'll focus on um, equine therapy, or maybe nature therapy, 
or you know maybe uh, you know forest bathing. And the other friend who was with us said, "You mean uh, you'll teach people how to be human?" Yeah. It's like yeah, that's basically it. Live like a yeah. human being, and you'll be healthy and happy. Yeah, I mean, if we just pay attention to nature, and here's the interesting thing: a part a part of this, the paradox in it all, is that we continue to try and remove ourselves from nature. And so we say nature like it's this thing that's out my window here, right? Yeah. When our fit, we are nature. We, we are. We can't run from the reality of consequences, right? Consequences is what nature is. And opportunity is how nature works. That which finds opportunity in, in very high stress situations out there wins and and it ends up evolving because it, the best genes are the ones that make the best changes right and and can find opportunity in those situations but our physiology is mimics that of the lion and the antelope my man and and yeah. like you know that's like you know like uh sapolsky's studied all of this and put it all out in books and you can go read it and go see his take his classes online and you can you don't have to get it from me but like Stress physiology is stress physiology. We just tend to think that we aren't a part of that, but we are a part of that. And so that we, we, we remove ourselves from this thing that makes us go look at ourselves, puts us right in front of ourselves as much as we can. And this is where we forget that we are nature. And it's like our, that physiology is a constant reminder. And if so if there's a physiological issue, it will manifest itself in a mechanical or a mental problem. There are going to be byproducts of that. And I, I mean, I, the, the question becomes, as my friend Fergus Connolly stated in a conversation we were having was, is psychology just misunderstood physiology? Mm. And it, are or the bells going or, or vice versa, man, right? Like, yeah. you know, and it's like, so, you know, from the physical standpoint, it became, why are you doing this? You know, Bruce Lee really was like, a pioneer and will always be ahead of every curve that for, for the rest of time, he will be ahead from what he did with martial arts was he said there were no, be like water, right? Like you gotta yeah. be, you know, let's empty the glass, man. Like be like water. Nature is like that. And it allows itself to adapt. And I think what we're doing is we're introducing people to the idea of why are you doing this? What does this bring you? Are you using it as a practice to understand your life, your behavior through your day? Like if I stick you in a cold plunge, why do you stay in that thing? If it's every signal in you is saying, get out because you understand there's this thing, this adaptive process that can occur. Okay. So you're going to stand for three minutes. What's the point of that? What's the point of three minutes? Well, that's just what everybody else is doing. Bingo. Now we've got you. Now we're starting to see this whole emotional inheritance thing that starts to manifest itself where we've taken on the idea of what culture is. And it's like, it's not that you can't be in there for three minutes. I didn't say that. I'm just challenging why you're here. So why are you picking up heavy weights? Why are you lifting weights that heavy and specializing so much in that so that your cardiovascular system inevitably ends up having a problem down the road when we're well aware we could take care of that and you can still get stronger right you know it's why are you doing this well this is just what everybody else does perfect 
Let's start breaking that down. Let's start really looking at why you don't honor yourself. Look at and find who you, I, I think we're all just a bunch of, you know, like we're every one of us, 7 billion children running around with an adult mask on. And there's a few of us that have decided to take the mask off and say, hey, I'm going to go look at, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm basically kind of crazy enough to, but I'm willing enough to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to work on me. I'm going to work on this and really look at this and, and play that role and lead through that process. And I think that's what we need more of is people who are willing to take a stand to understand themselves versus trying to just fit in. And I understand that need to fit in. I, I'm totally compassionate to it. It's rejection. It sounds, I mean, the, when you describe your work, it sounds so oriented toward therapy. <laughs> You know, I was expecting to talk yeah. to a dude who was all about, you know, increasing your cardiovascular fitness and, you know, uh, physiological stuff. But what you're talking about is very psychological and emotional. And uh, it's a lot deeper than than just physical training. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've uh, it, it's taken a while. I mean, it's taken 20 years to get to this thing that I understood 20 years ago, but had no idea how to articulate it. Right. right. Um, but to be clear, we're also the species that behaves pretty much in a way that thinks, you know, we think that like I could go create a better tra training program for, for a lion living in the wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and, and by that, here's what I mean. I couldn't take a Comanche Indian back in the 1800s and create a, program that would make him more cardiovascularly sound he's already doing everything or she's already doing everything they need to do because they're paying attention because of how they live right right i can't so, I, I don't need to help that <laughs> yeah do you think is is it the case that um you know thinking about children playing right mm -hmm. and the way children mm -hmm. move climbing yeah. things and jumping yeah. and running and falling and rolling and all like I feel like the older I get, the it's one thing that drives me crazy about American culture is how, you know, you want to walk, you get a treadmill. You want to, um, you know, lift weights, you get, uh, you know, some kind of machine that they sell on late night TV. Everything gets categorized and turned into some form of work uh, as opposed to playing. And it seems like when you look at little kids playing, it's like what you said about the lion in nature or the Comanche, yeah. like they're responding to a voice within them that tells them how to inhabit their bodies and how to deal with the flow of energy. And culture, American culture in particular, is all about teaching kids to ignore that voice until it comes to the time they can't hear it anymore. And then we're obese and sick and depressed and so on. Yes, sir. And this is this is what we're doing. So we have a bunch of children with adult masks on who are raising children to be just like them versus people raising a child to be an authentic version of what it is that character could develop into. Right. right. And that doesn't mean being some, you know, some strung out drug addict or whatever. Right. But I mean, like my parents did a damn good job and I still got mixed up in drugs and alcohol when I was younger. I got into trouble a few times, but I, I had enough of an upbringing that was supportive enough to where I was able to, oh, you know what? This really isn't working. Like, 
you know, and I had enough experiences with, you know, girls and all of these things to know that when I wanted to settle down or have a relationship with somebody that was monogamous, it was, hey, I want that. I don't want, I've done all of this, right? So from a cultural, cultural perspective, we have really taken on like this idea that there's this box, there's this house we need to buy with a white picket fence and have 1.25, 1.5 kids or whatever. And I get the nice car and do this and do that. It's like, I've just never, I've just struggled my entire life to fit into that box. And now I'm finally at a point where I'm like, nah, I'm good. Like I'm, I'm on the right path. I don't want to fit in that box. I want to figure out what this guy wants or this person wants from without being too heavily influenced, even though there's nothing I can do about most of the influences that are occurring all the time. Was was there a pivot point in your life where you sort of shifted from trying to fit into the box to just abandoning it? I mean, I would say it was, I mean, it was so early. I I was, I had such high energy as a kid and my parents didn't know what to do with me. And so it was like, you know, take him to the pool and toss me in the pool. And I took the water like fish and it was like, I found swimming and then I, you know, I played water polo, but it was like, I, um, you know, and surfing, I grew up surfing and being in the ocean. Um, but I think it was really when my brother and sister came along because when they came along, there was this, now I'm not the sole focus. Right. And so as a child, when that happens, it's like you start setting up these things. Well, rebellion won me attention. Mm -hmm. And so rebellion was that thing. But I also, the rebellion happened because I think that identity, I understood very early on that my identity was being challenged, mm-hmm. which is where a perfect place for anger should sit when my identity is being challenged. Mm-hmm. Now, as I get angry, I should, after that, be settled and not have to harbor judgment and later, you know, like be affected by this. But unfortunately, that's not what we use anger for. In- culturally anymore right you know and um you know that's that's where i when i i would say probably around five or six was where the rebellion began Mm. and it just transcended because as i girls like the bad boy so (laughs) i you know that's where that fat fit in real early like you know maybe too early at some points but then the alcohol and all that stuff i mean i i was handed weed when i was 10 by some hessians down the street you know and it was like oh what was that like i'm whatever what are those cool guys doing you know i I was just drawn to punk rock culture grow i grew up in orange county in the 80s and it was this was a hub for punk rock skateboarding and surfing and um, it wasn't what you saw you see on the Housewives of Orange County or whatever show you're checking out. It was very different back then, um, even though there were suburbs. But, uh, you know, punk rock just I'm punk rock to the core. <laughs> like, mm. um, but I'm also like, you know, I'm, I've done enough to where I'm not I, I'm not that I'm not angry like that anymore. I'm, I'm very much calm, compassionate, but I also know my lines like. Here's what that is. Don't do, don't cross that. (laughs) Yeah. So where, how did you get to where you are now? You didn't, sounds like you didn't come into this from a, a medicine uh, perspective. It sounds like you came into it more through Uh, an athletics. Yeah. Totally. I like going fast. Oh yeah. 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 I like going fast. Like I like going fast. Like I like when the waves get bigger. Like I, I was one of the people who was like, you know, if the waves got bigger, I got more excited. 
You know, when mm-hmm. the waves get bigger, there's the, the third hit, the, the, the herd thins in the water. Right now, I got a lot of friends and they may hear this that are in the big wave surf community. That is not the types of waves I go and deal with, <laughs> even though I've been yeah. out in that stuff. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I'm just, I like that going fast thing. I like pushing that edge and what, in, you know, in the adrenaline of that and the feeling of, wow, I navigated that really well, or damn, I made some mistakes. What can I learn from that? And can I get back up on the horse and do it again? And I, in 46 years have always gotten back up on the horse. And so it, for the performance stuff came through that, that desire to go fast, but then it was like, Hey, like you're going to, you're going to get through your twenties and things are going to start to change. <laughs> like I was well aware of that as everybody was indicating that. And, um, you know, and it has, but now it's like understanding, like, I still like to go fast. I still like to downhill on my mountain bike. I still like to do skateboard. I still like to go and surf heavier surf. Um, but I'm more calculated with what it is I'm doing. I'm more honest with how I'm actually doing that stuff and why I'm doing that. Am I prepared enough to be in water with 10 to 15 foot surf that I haven't been in for a year? I probably won't get in. I'll probably wait and Mm -hmm. to get my conditioning up to be out and surf like that. But nonetheless, (laughs) I want to be out there. Yeah. Yeah, I have a good friend who's a big wave surfer from Santa mm-hmm. Cruz, Kyle mm-hmm. Tierman, uh-huh. and he's out on 40, 50 foot waves sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, it's funny. We were in a situation once um, that uh, that got a little crazy. And and later we were talking about it. And I said, Kyle, you're a funny dude, man. You know, because before we got into that situation, you were kind of awkward and weird. And when the situation was over, you're a little awkward and weird. But when the shit was really crazy there in the middle, you seem totally relaxed. And, you know, it's it's like you're like a pilot who knows how to fly a plane, but isn't real good at taking off or landing. And he was like, oh, yeah, man, that's why I surf. I I'm relaxed when shit's crazy. Yeah. The rest of the time, I'm kind of nervous and I don't really yeah. know what to do. But when the shit's really crazy, that's when I'm. I'm most relaxed. It's a funny thing talking about stress, right? Which we were talking about earlier. Like stress is one of those words. I feel like we use it, but we don't really know what we're talking about. Cause you know, you would say surfing down a 40 foot wave, that's insanely stressful. Mm -hmm. And yet for him, it's relaxing, Mm -hmm. right? Because the stress triggers his relaxation. Whereas for, and, and a lot of us, when we're relaxed, we get stressful because we're thinking about shit and worrying about mortality or whatever, you know, when you're, when you're actually facing the bear, you're not, mm-hmm. you're almost relaxed because your choices are so limited and clear There's as opposed to when you're lying in bed that. thinking about it, you know? <laughs> Correct. Yeah. I, I mean, I've seen this a lot. I've also seen it where, you know, there's, there's a few guys in, you know, so like Laird Hamilton, so I, I was pretty close with Laird Hamilton for quite some time. Like, yeah, I was one of his tr- closest training partners for roughly four years. And, um, you know, what going out with him in like 60, 70, 80 foot surf, sometimes you're like, dude, like, like this is insane. What I mean, you know, and he'll just straight up tell people like, if they're out there with him, like, 
Hey, if this is too hairy, if you, if you, if you're not feeling, you need to turn around and go back now. Right. I can't have you here. Then you go watch him pull into this wave and all of a sudden it's like sound doesn't exist. And you're just this dude is like on this wave in his pl- and that's the place. Right. And I mean, same thing with guys like Mark Healy and Kyle, who you're talking about. It's like, boom, there's their place. And it's just but the thing is, yeah. I've found that those of us that can't actually turn it off and just slow it down. And I was this guy. Like I was that guy that I was going fast all the time and I still go fast, but I'm so much more. And this is what breathwork did for me. Like it really showed me what I was doing and how I was doing it. And all this stuff started coming up and it was like, I finally could just sit there and slow down. I remember mm. thinking that meditation wasn't for me. I remember telling people that like it was my MO. My meditation is when I go running. My meditation is when I'm training. And that's just not it. That's just not it. That's that's per, that's bringing you purpose and and that's a facet of it. But it, mm. with the ability to sit and just drop out and feel it and be like, "Okay, what what am I feeling right now? Why can't yeah. I slow down? Why do I have this need to constantly be on 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 on?" And this is where I was able to dig down and see, oh, like I've got this rejection piece going on, you know, and there's did layers. Did you do that with therapy or how did you, how did you do that? I've worked with therapists for t- over 20 years. Like in, in, in the beginning it was like I needed, right? Now I find people and I'm like, I want to work with that person. I want to, I want to learn from that person. And I've, you know, I constantly am doing this. Um, and so I, it, I, I constantly am working with some a therapist of some sort at some time or another. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. sometimes there's a need for it. Um, but there's always a need for it. Like, I, you know, I mean, I, I think anybody who, who, who does, does not use a therapist or has not, that's a problem. Culturally, this, this is a, pr- you need somebody who you can actually feel comfortable enough to talk to, to get down to those layers of why you're not, why, why things are the way they are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I truly think that, you know, the ability to take off that mask and, and, and be open enough and saying, yeah, I, I'm fighting a war myself. <laughs> like, I don't need to try and cover this up anymore. And, right. and that right there changes how you feel about the world. Right. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. yeah I, uh, I actually met, I've been in Laird Hamilton's sauna, never met him. Oh. But I've been in the sauna uh, with his wife and yeah, uh, yep. Neil, Neil Strauss. I was on their yes. podcast, the oh, Truth okay. Barrel. Yep, the only uh, semi-naked podcast I've done, I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, I met uh, Mark Keeley in Hawaii in the back of a pickup truck uh, <laughs> with Kyle, and uh, we we just chatted for about half an hour. Super nice dude, totally oh, yeah. down to earth, chilled guy. And then later, Kyle was like, you know who Mark, Mark Healy is? I was like, no, I don't know. Some guy in the back of the truck. He's like, dude, he's a legend. He's a surfing legend. I said, well, yeah. you could have told me. I didn't know that. <laughs> I just thought yeah. he was some guy named Mark. Yeah. M- really Mark, nice Mark is living as close to nature as uh, anybody basically is. I mean, yeah. the dude literally gets his food by going into the ocean or going hunting for it. And then yeah. – 
dives and surfs waves, you know, just little redhead kid. Awesome. Moved to Hawaii, man. <laughs> Good move. Yeah. So, so I had a, I have a friend, I, I have sort of a similar, I mean, I've always found meditation difficult. I've done mm-hmm. a fair bit of it. I started meditating when I was probably 10 years old, when I started doing martial oh, wow. arts as a kid. Yeah. 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 Um, but I always found it physically difficult. I did a Vipassana retreat, you know, 10 days oh, silent thing. My man. Oh, yeah. I've done, that's the ultra marathon of, of, <laughs> of meditations. Of sitting. Mm-hmm. I'm an ultra sitter. Yeah. Uh, but I've always found it like my back hurts, my knees hurt, my neck hurts. It's like, ah, just sitting like this for five hours is a... Um, and then I have a buddy who owns a um, uh, isolation tank center mm-hmm. in uh, Austin, a really interesting guy, Kevin. And he invited me to go float a bunch. And I lived in Portland. And those guys invited me to float because I can't afford to be paying 75 bucks an hour or whatever it is. Um, but these guys were generous enough to just give me unlimited free floats. And I found like, well, this is what I was looking for when I was meditating. Because I get into this meditative state, but I'm not distracted by my my joints, you know, like my body disappears mm. and then I'm just like total consciousness. It's fantastic, but it's really hard for me to get there. My body, it sounds like for you, your body is a conduit to a meditative state, whereas for me, it's a barrier, I think, in, in most senses. Well, right now it is. It doesn't have to be. Right. And yeah. I mean, just depending on how deep down in, into the hole you want to get with it, it's like, I mean, look, I had no intention of being able to sit there and meditate for six hours straight. None. I had some hormonal problems, issues that had that were compounded from a, a bike accident I had on my mountain bike. And I had this episode of insomnia for like three months that I had to figure out. And it like, I mean, it was just horrific. I mean, there were like maybe three nights, four nights a week. I'd get maybe three or four hours of sleep. The rest were just like an hour. It was horrific. Right. Yeah. The only way I got through that was just laying there and breathing. And I was just Mm. following a breath pattern and I'd just sit there and be like, you know, the only place I'm going to, I can go right now is just to be compassionate towards myself because I can't function during the day real well. I'm having trouble with that. And it really just came to me. It was like, wow, like I really, this isn't that hard if you're willing to just be in the moment. And that's exactly what something like a float tank can do. It's simply a perception change. It's helping you change your perception on what's going on. This is, I mean, this is why psychedelics are so great for a lot of people is it's, oh, it's presenting this, this new view of what the world could be or is like that is totally distorted from your reality, right? And people coming out of things like ayahuasca journeys and mushroom trips and things are like, they're like, wow, I just need to be a lot more like compassionate towards myself and the rest of people, you know, the rest of the world, you know, um, like there's no like magic here. It's just literally perception. Our view, uh, like our perception of reality versus what reality is, is what changes. And we've just gotten so we've just gotten into this such fast paced world. You know, I mean, the fact that we get to connect like this is awesome, but it still comes with consequences. 
the idea that we can still continue to do this. And so if there's problems, we have, you know, we're pissed off about it, right? Like, or whatever that, you know, like there's so many consequences for having one of these things, right? Like in 50 years, we're probably going to be like, God, remember that iPhone thing? Like, whoa, that was a mistake. Like, <laughs> you know, like it's just yeah. like cigarettes, you know, like with social media, like we already know social media is this horrifically, like it's just this thing that has allowed people's dysfunction to get so out of control and nobody has to be responsible for that because you know they just don't and this is the same thing that was happening with big tobacco and big pharma and like oh they're just you know producing things that help people in one aspect but are killing them in another aspect oh okay (laughs) you know it's all kind of the same thing we're just repeating it with different shit and I feel like, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's just as long as we can understand there's consequences with things and we're willing to look at that, like this fast paced lifestyle is something I chose. I can slow this down at any point. Mm. And it just is going to take a little bit more work than I might understand that like I might want. And this is the biggest problem I run into with people who come to me, especially world class athletes who've been going through brick walls or operators right special forces guys like these people go through brick walls for years and then finally something finally starts breaking down enough to where it's like fuck, i'm having panic attacks i'm dealing with this i've got joint issues i've got these problems and it's like yeah so how much are you willing to look at here all of it any of it all right so let me know let's let's see how you're breathing and their breathing will, will tell me everything already. Like it's already like somebody's. So we use this term called CO2 tolerance, which is basically how well you tolerate carbon dioxide, which is why we actually breathe. So we, we don't breathe contrary to everybody's kind of belief because of oxygen. It, like we need oxygen for sure. But oxygen is we have very little in the human body that's there to detect oxygen. We have a tremendous amount to detect carbon dioxide because too Mm. high of levels of carbon dioxide is a pH shift that is a death sentence. Mm. And it turns out that there's a yin yang prophecy that exists. This is actually principles, but oxygen cannot be made bioavailable without the use of carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide has to enter the red blood cell in order to get the oxygen out so that it can perfuse with the cell. Now, all the scientific stuff out, if there's a direct correlation between, and this is the easiest thing to understand, physical work or metabolic rate going up and my respiration rate increasing. Well, yeah, when I work out, I breathe harder. That's CO2. And, and demand for oxygen has gone up, but CO2 is the mechanism because that's the byproduct of creating energy. It's one of the byproducts. From a passive side of things, just sitting here, how tolerant we are is a very, is a big telltale sign on how stressed out we actually are. And so from a mm. psychological side of things, if I am taken on too much and I have emotionally or even task oriented, right? I am diminishing my ability to tolerate CO2. So my ventilation rate increases as a result of that. It's just unconsciously, this is these centers are set up in the brain stem. But the beautiful thing about breathing is that the moment that I take control of it, 
I just brought that cortex online. I took it off that brainstem. And now if I can control it and slow it, for instance, I've now brought on this calming effect. And even though I might be stressed, I've now given myself the ability to create new neural pathways in order to manage stress. Not saying I can change your thinking, but what I, what I can help you do is get, is get a hold of that physiology and that stress response. And then we can start to play into, Hey, let's slow it down. Are, is there really a threat around you right now? Do you need to be somewhere right now? Do you really need to be, or are you, is that, is that just a perception? Is that just you thinking you need to be doing something else? And why, let's look at that. Why do you feel like you constantly need to be, just look at why you feel like you need to do that. I'm not judging you either way. You look at that, right? And then, so it, the, the thing is, is that this, that, that opens up possibility for people in ways that it, it's just a tool, right? Like to introduce right. and let's control your breathing. But this then opens up that pathway into which direction do you want to go with this? And that adaptability thing I kind of began with where as human beings, our, our understanding of, I know I can, I, I can partake in this stressful thing. Like we all know that if we were to lift some weights, we'd get stronger, right? So we know by engaging in stress, we can create adaptation. Well, just so ha it just so happens that this CO2 thing is highly adaptable. A human being just held their breath statically for over 20 minutes. You and I don't need to necessarily do that. Like that's too, that's very specialized, right? Yeah. Is that a free but, diver or something? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a free diver, right? But Mark Healy's held his breath for seven minutes before. I've held my breath for five, mm. right? Like from a static, and it, and it took me a little time to build up to that. Um, but what's possible, we, we aren't aware of. We don't know what's possible, right? But we like to box that in still, you know? And then the other thing is, is that we also don't like to believe that things so simple could be that effective. And yet, when I go back to the Comanches or Native yeah. Americans, it's been documented. I didn't make it up, but there's even a book written about it. And they all kept their mouths shut in most of everything they did. And their mm. languages didn't have lots of words with little meaning. They had big words with big meaning. Mm. And so culturally speaking, the English language, we're just like always running our mouths, right? Mm. Rarely listening and seeing what's going on. You know, and I mean, you wow. look, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there, there's a lot of philosophical stuff with what I, you know, like I'm into, but it's, I mean, look, I, I don't, there isn't a book I can't read that I'm not like, whoa, this, this works with my work. Like, right, you right. know, like I go read Empire of the Summer Moon, you Great know, book. oh, I've yeah. read it three times and I'm like, yeah. damn. And George Catlin was cited in that book several times as a historian, hmm. wrote a book called shut your mouth and save your life because of the what he saw between indigenous and civilized culture really the biggest difference yeah written in 1867 i believe you know it's i've never thought about the correlation between language and breathing patterns mm. that's a really interesting point that you raised there mm -hmm. um you know i've i've like 
hung out with people who were raised in China and Korea. And I've noticed that they breathe through their nose in the middle of a sentence Mm -hmm. that they'll be saying something in English, but they'll say something. And then there'll be like a deep breath through their nose back out. And then they continue speaking. And I sort of noticed that commonality, but I never thought of the idea that it could be because they're raised in a language that promotes nasal breathing. Whereas we in English, I think the language itself promotes mouth breathing. It's an interesting correct. thing. Huh. Yeah, correct. I mean, and that that would be my theory, right? It's almost, like that would it's be almost a- like how shoes promote bad walking patterns and correct. cause back part, uh, problems. A, yeah, correct. Huh. Yeah, yeah, so, but you look at this and, excuse me, and there's good reason for us breathing through our mouths when we're talking. I am coming up into a heightened arousal state as a result of this because I'm offloading carbon dioxide more than mm. necessary, right? Right. When I do that, remember that bioavailability of oxygen? That just got reduced. Physiology doesn't give a shit. It really doesn't care. This is nature, right? So we have anaerobic cellular respiration and aerobic cellular respiration. I just move the needle more into that anaerobic side of things, so I'm using more sympathetic tone when I'm talking. So if I go give a speech or I go present or I get on a podcast and talk with Chris, anytime I'm talking, my arousal state increases. And it does it from a physiological perspective because I'm offloading that carbon dioxide. So I've moved that dissociative curve away. Right. Right. And then the moment I stop, I can shut my mouth and I can automate. And I used to never do this. I used to always be thinking, what am I going to say next? What am I going to do? Say, <laughs> right? right? Like versus yeah. how about you just fucking listen, dude, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. listen to what people are saying. And that's, that's the thing. And I mean, you know, it's like, I've become a better listener. Yeah. Like I've just, beca- I, because I'm actually interested in what people are telling me because I want to hear what they're telling me. And they're telling me things that they don't know they're telling me. You know, and you you probably understand that a great deal. You know, people will tell you exactly where they're at if you let them. Yeah. You know, um, and the other the other side of this is this is that, uh, you know, the food choices that we've made have really impacted how the jaw structure works. And there's been a ton of work on this. There's a book called Jaws, The Hidden Epidemic that was done. Um, and they talk about this in it about nasal breathing. I mean, if my if I don't chew foods enough, especially as a child. That jaw malform that there's malformation in that jaw, and that is yeah. attached to my maxilla bone, which shrinks the sinuses, which makes it more difficult to breathe, and then the nose starts to change itself, um, and it makes it much more difficult. But the beauty, the beautiful thing here, is that it's not a lost cause. It's not lost because the body's plastic till the body dies, and you could be 80 yeah. years old, and if we could get you just doing a few things a day, you know, just taking some deep breaths, it can change everything. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you get into breathing through Wim Hof or were you in it before he came on the scene? How, what was your introduction? Uh, we, uh, yeah, I, uh, so I got into breathing because somebody handed me a training mask. Uh, one of those things people put on their face and train mm-hmm. for um, oxygen. I, <laughs> to uh, well, no, no, it was, it was a resistance breathing device that said elevation training mask on it. And I kind of laughed because uh, I knew that it doesn't change barometric. It doesn't change the pressure in the air. 
Um, and then I also know that, you know, it, it wasn't, it, there's no way it could have changed ox oxygen saturation levels. Um, mm. That said, I put the mask on. The moment I put it on, it provided resistance. I went and I sat up because mm. I that resistance forced me to use more of my diaphragm. Use my diaphragm in a way that forced me to organize myself very differently. Mm. And my background of movement instantly went boom and I my head blew up and I was like holy shit like I've got something that we can use with athletes like in warm-ups that'll now I don't have to yell at them mm. um, about moving crappy and now they're getting air in oh wait and then we discovered oh yeah just shut your mouth for, for you know a, a large majority of the time and you've got a resistance breathing device there then it was I got in I, I then started exploring a lot of the yoga stuff because I had had some background in yoga, but I'd never really paid attention to the breathing aspect of it, even though that's mm. the foundation of breathing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like a 5,000 year old practice. And, you know, I'm like, oh, <laughs> wow. They've been talking about this for quite some time. Um, then it was the Wim Hof. Wim Hof. We were, uh, Laird and I were actually, he had handed me a little book that was written on Wim years 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 ago and it was like i think it was just translated from dutch and uh it was pretty it was pretty poorly done but he's like yeah read this because we were doing a lot of cold plunging like laird was the first one to stub shove me in an ice in an ice plunge and um it was not a pleasant experience at first but it was it was interesting because he sat in there and talked to me for like three or four minutes like nothing was going on and then i got in there and i was like holy shit like I got to get out of here. I, I'm like, how long am I supposed to be in here? And he's like, oh, just do three minutes. And I'm like, I, I can't last three minutes. And I got out and he just started laughing his ass off, like almost like rolling on the ground. And oh, so I, he handed me this book. He goes, just read this. This will tell you more about the ice training. And it was about the ice man. And yeah. we got into it and it, there wasn't much on his method and his, they had just, basically started translating his stuff into English and nobody really knew about him. And Laird and I reached out to him and we connected with him. And uh, so there was an early onset with Wim Hof, but I found that, you know, that was a very niche thing and there was a method and it was a beautiful thing. And he's probably one of the most important figureheads that have come forward for breathing because more people are aware of breathing because of this guy. Um, but I, I, I'm strictly a principles person like i'm really like hey what 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 i could use wim hof but i could also use this slow controlled stuff what's this mean like where how, how am i using oxygen like how well am i functioning right now and breathing is impacted in any way shape or form when stress is involved because stress is energy and all yeah. energy is run through this pipeline known as our respiratory system you ever read um james sarno's work mind over back pain that ring a bell? No, no. He's, he was an interesting guy. It's it's kind of old now. Probably uh, probably came out in the nineties, maybe. Um, but he was an um, orthopedic surgeon in New York City. Uh, I think he taught at Columbia University Medical School. He's a very prominent guy. Mm -hmm. uh, tens of thousands of spinal operations, and at one point, sort of late in his career, he started to notice that uh, he had a lot of people coming to him with pain and uh, the pain expressed itself where they had a herniated disc. And so for, you know, almost all surgeons were like, well, you got to fix the herniated disc, right? But then he noticed that sometimes uh, 
people who had herniated discs had no pain. Mm-hmm. So the the causal relationship between the herniated disc and the pain confused him. And he started looking into it more and more. And eventually he came to the conclusion that somewhere around, I think he said 70 to 80% of the patients that came to him with back pain were cured in one session when he simply introduced to them the idea that stress expresses itself through back pain in people. And he would talk to them about what's going on in your life right now. And it's like, well, I'm getting a divorce. Ah, massive stress. So the stress in some people expresses itself through digestive disorders, insomnia, hair falling out, Mm -hmm. skin problems. But in a lot of people, especially Americans, it expresses itself through back pain. And it's the herniated disc isn't the cause of the pain. It's that the stress sort of it finds weaknesses in the body, the mind body, right? And that's where it bulges out. That's mm-hmm. where it expresses itself yeah. because there's a physiological weakness. Yeah. But the physiological weakness is not the cause of the pain. Yes. It's just the weak point where that pain, where that stress yeah. expresses. Yeah. Really interesting. I mean, and kind of obvious a to a guy like you who's working yeah. with the mind body as one unified entity mm-hmm. um, but in a culture where we see the mind over here and the body over there uh it's kind of a revelation i think yeah yeah no i i, I would agree with him wholeheartedly um you know what i mean you know i think about this and it's like i i, I do a lot of work with pts and, and inside the physical therapy world sports medicine world because of the work we've done with breath work and what we've been able to find and you know it's not that these practitioners haven't been aware of this stuff it's just they didn't know how much of an impact it actually had um and you know it's it's interesting because um you know even even within training coaching and in sports medicine we're trying to help people get out of pain and pain is there for a reason pain pain is nature's way of saying choose differently and as practitioners, I try and get these folks, and I'm not a PT, but I've I've spent so much time with so, some very high level people, and I, you know I'm pre- I'm I'm pretty movement savvy, and I understand movement mechanics, all this stuff, but I try and get them to understand that it's not their job to basically get people out of pain; it's their job to show people why they're in pain, mm. and that's my job. That's what I do. Is I'm just right. basically teaching people how to feel again, what they're Mm. feeling. And I'm using breathing as that. And that was kind of the email and why we connected was like, look, man, uh, here's what we're doing. I'm I'm trying to show people the entire biological phenomenon and how we're and how stress is affecting them. And and that back piece is a perfect example of, yeah. I mean, do you think our ancestors had herniated discs? You bet your ass they did. <laughs> like they worked their asses off. They sat in w- buggies, wagons going across the the country, like trying to make it, crossing Comanche territory, not knowing if they would live another day. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, um, so, <laughs> you know, the work really comes down. I'm tr- I really want people to kind of take that this on is that pain is, is there for a reason. It's nature's way of saying choose differently. And, the uncomfortable side of this is that protection from pain 
is called and suffering is called trauma. And trauma is a choice. Hmm. And this is a very hard thing for people to chew on because they don't want to believe. Now, this is a very different thing than a traumatic experience, right? Trauma being I'm holding on to something that I'm not willing to look at and I'm protecting myself. And this is what I uncovered was, oh, this rejection piece, right? Like I am protecting myself from not from being rejected by either sabotaging shit myself in order to protect myself. And then it's simply trauma. I worked with some trauma specialists to really get into the core of this stuff and understand it. And I'm using physical training as a means to show people their own trauma. Like, why do you think you have to work out every single day? That's trauma. You're protecting yourself from something. And if you get hurt, why are you freaking out? Because you can't work out right now and do your thing. Well, what are we not looking at? There's plenty of people in my network I can you can go work with. But if you're not willing to look at it, I can't help you. And, you know, yeah. I mean, this is also why I charge so damn much for people is it's like I'm only interested in people who are really willing to cross over that line and say, yeah, I'm ready to look at this and really, really re ready to work at it. But, you know, I, I try and do a lot within the social media side. It's strictly business for me. Like my purpose is driven through that that portal of like, hey, here's the discovery. Here's what we're seeing. Here's what people are doing. If you're, you know, like there's there's opportunity in all of this and ironically even the world's best like we're talking gold medalists world champions that are willing to take a look at this stuff and go down that path just a tad they're making massive changes that are allowing them to stay in the game and understand that the game is not who they are right and that's the problem is like oh i'm nothing without this whole mm. thing you know what i mean i i you know Hey, do you, were you able to see the uh, documentary Michael Jordan thing? Dude, that, okay, you and I just had a psychic moment. Oh! I was waiting for you to finish what you were saying, and I was going to ask go you ahead. if you had you seen go that. Ahead. Uh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I just saw it a couple weeks ago, and as you were talking about, you know, I'm not the game, and there's much more mm -hmm. going on than the game, I was thinking about how my... I watched all whatever it was, seven episodes. Yeah. And my feeling was like Michael Jordan was the least interesting person in that whole show. Yes. I was so interested in Phil well, Jackson and Scottie yes. Pippen and Mike and, you know, Dennis what Rodman. What a quality human being Scottie Pippen is, huh? Like, oh, I'm just dude. like, wow, why isn't this thing on him? Look at this right. guy who's, who's the greatest athlete we've witnessed, who's 20 years out and still pissed off about shit. And by the way... <laughs> <laughs> Nobody saw anything with his family, and he's sitting alone in his home. <laughs> I, I with noticed yellow that too. jaundice eyes. Like yeah. he's obviously Where's, switched over to some drinking, and it's like, the oh wife? my god, yeah. man! Like yeah. this poor guy is just a tortured and, soul. And yet we're holding him up as the 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 model, you know, right this alongside is, you know Michael Jackson, you know, right, the King, mm -hmm. uh, Elvis, you and, know these yeah. these sad, wounded, pathetic self-destructive people in our culture saying that's the best that's yep. the goal right there yep whoa yeah yeah <laughs> and yeah. her helicopter parenting <laughs> <laughs> yeah man hey yeah. listen brian i've i've taken an hour of your time i really appreciate it it's yeah, uh you know this podcast i i used to hitchhike a lot when i was a kid and oh, wow. um people ask me like why i do the podcast and the the real reason i do it is that 
I love the feeling of getting into a car with a stranger, knowing very little to nothing about them other than they were kind enough to stop and pick me up and just see where the conversation goes and just let it happen organically. And I just love when it works. And I, I feel like it really flowed with you today. I, I really enjoyed this. Chris, I well, thank you. And that's interesting. I'm wondering how many terrible experiences happened during the hitchhiking. Um, <laughs> you don't hear too many people who said I used to hitchhike a lot, you know, through, as a kid. But uh... yeah, well, I'm I'm old, so it was it wasn't as bad then. I I'm almost sixty, so I'm talking, you know, late seventies, early eighties. Oh, yeah. It was. It was still bad, but not that bad. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, I'm I'm glad you're doing this, man. And I I, I had a feeling we'd hit it off based on me, now, you know, knowing your work and what you've challenged, and uh, you know, I I felt like it would be a good connection. So uh, well, it turns I out we have a lot. That. We have a lot of friends in common. Like yeah, uh, I've I've hung out a lot with Wim and his family. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Years ago, I I was in Spain and I reached out and they said I'd love to do a podcast with him and. You know, I've been on Rogan's show a bunch, so mm -hmm. that's a good calling card. People, you know, sometimes make time for me because they see that connection. And mm -hmm. and they were like, okay, sure, you can, uh, you know, we'll connect on uh, Thursday on video or something. And I was like, no, no, I want to fly up to Holland. Like, I want to meet this dude. I'll fly up. And they're like, really? You come to Holland? I'm like, fuck yeah. So I went up and uh, we did the podcast and... And then Wim filled up the barrel with ice and we got in the ice barrel and took a sauna and, you know, they invited me to hang out with him and his family for a week in the Pyrenees and we're up there and, you know, now I've, I've, I know all his kids and, uh, yeah, his, his oldest son and him and him. Yeah. Oh Yeah. We've spent time. Yeah. They've all come out. I, we brought them out to LA and brought them to Hawaii. Right. And oh yeah, we've, we've done, we've done the Hoff. It's a lot, a lot of energy in There's that family. There's a lot of energy in that family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're beautiful good people. Good for them. Yeah, man. All right. Well, listen, thanks, Brian. Really good talking to you. And yeah. I hope we uh, hope we can hang out together in, in uh, you know, meet world sometime. Yeah, brother. Yeah. Good to meet you. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Tangentially Speaking. If you did, if this podcast brings value to your life, I hope you'll consider supporting it financially, either through my website, tangentiallyspeaking.com, uh, where you can make a one-time donation or sign up for a monthly subscription as low as five bucks a month, which gets you access to all the eBooks and uh, video Roma that I record pretty much every month if people ask me questions. Uh, and other bonus materials. Um, and also keep in mind that this is one of the only podcasts that you listen to, I would bet, that doesn't have commercials almost all the time. Very rarely do I use commercials. And I never just accept commercials from a commercial broker or someone. You know, I get emails all the time, people saying, oh, let me monetize your podcast. No, thanks. So if you enjoy this podcast, if it brings value to you, I hope you'll consider supporting it financially. The introductory music is called Bright Side of the Sun. It's by Basin and Range. And now I will turn you over to my mom and the great Carsey Blanton singing Smoke Alarm. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> 
<laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch, why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up but give it a rest, you're gonna die one day. Dance into the ground 